As I said, you can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's an outline there in front of you. If you don't have one, there should be one in the back there as well. I would ask that as I read the first 12 verses once again, this is part two of this message, Paul's model and motives for ministry, that you stand in honor of God's word this morning, and and we'll just read these quickly and get into the message. In verse 1, chapter 2, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, and though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict for our God, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive but just as we have been approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts for we never came with words of flattery as you know nor with a pretext for greed God is witness verse 6 Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you, into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our heart now as we continue our study through this chapter in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we looked last week at the pressures that reveal right motives. We're talking about right motives in our own heart. How do we know that our motives are pure? How do we know that our motives are holy? Well, pressure sometimes can reveal that, and we saw that in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, we saw the problems that undermine right motives, problems, that things that stand in the way of us having proper motives. And the first one we saw in verse 3, where he talks about exhorting here, he says, uh, proclaiming God's truth without a heart for God and his glory. In verse 3, he says, for our appeal, that word appeal there, is, it means uh, in the original language, to come alongside of. Paracletus, and it, it has an idea that, that basically God's truth um, comes alongside us. That's what their appeal was. But there are individuals who proclaim the truth of God without heart for God and his glory. And we see that in the three words there that we went over. Uh, we first looked at the deviations, the error. In other words, there are some teachers that have a tendency to wander from the truth. We see that all over the map today. Uh, defilement or the word impurity in the text, it means they actually proclaim God's word with impure motives, seeking to take advantage, or deception. They deceive, ways of deceit. And that was the first one, proclaiming God's truth without a heart for God and his glory in verse 3. And then in verse 4, we saw that the other problem that, that stands in the way, that undermines the right motive, is pleasing men rather than pleasing God. And that's what he points out there in verse 4, uh, that we, not, we, we speak not to please man, but to please God. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And then we, thirdly, in verse um, 5 here, we see basically how important it is to understand that the other thing that, that can be a problem to our own right motives is basically promoting your own agenda and gain rather than submitting to the will of God. Promoting your own agenda and gain rather than submitting to the will of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. And this is where we begin our study this morning. For we never came with words of what? What's he say? Flattery, as you know. 
nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness here. A couple things here. The first one, there in verse 5, he says the outward response of one who would have wrong motives would be a response of flattery. Flattery. He says, we never came with words of flattery, Paul says. It's interesting word study uh, when you begin to study what this word means throughout Scripture. And we don't have time to go into all that this morning. But in Job 17, Job 17, verse 5, he says, He that speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children shall fail. God does not look favorably on words of flattery. Proverbs in, in various places throughout the Proverbs and the Psalms, Proverbs consists, uh, it says flattery consists of words that are insincere. Uh, compliments that do not really represent what your heart is telling you. A lot of times you'll, you'll see this. And throughout Proverbs and throughout the Psalms, flattery is condemned over and over again. It never looks at flattery in, as in a light that's favorable. And we, we have to take this to heart. Um, flattery, according to God's word, are insincere remarks. They're insincere compliments that you give people that don't represent really how you feel. It's like when you meet that couple with their newborn baby. And I'm just being honest. Not all babies are cute. <laughs> right? We, you know what I'm saying? I mean, hey, they're, they're gentle little souls. They're wonderful, and I'm sure they grow out of it. But some babies are downright ugly. They're not pleasant to look at. We know that. Now, that sounds like a mean thing to say, but it's true, and we know that. But we would never say that. Oh, they're so cute, you know, when maybe they're not. Those are words of flattery. Those are words of flattery. Um. Now, we want to encourage people. We want to give people compliments, but we have to be honest with our compliments. When our compliments are insincere, when our compliments are meant to manipulate, we have another agenda. Our, our motives are wrong. And Paul says, we never came to you with words of flattery. Paul was a straight shooter. He just told it the way it was. If that hurt your feelings, he didn't really care because he was representing God. And for some reason, you have to be careful when people come out, when they're saying all nice things about you. And they want to just kind of lather it up and lay it on thick. And you begin to realize, wait a minute, what's the reasoning behind this? Sometimes, even back at the door, I greet people. and Oh, that was a wonderful sermon, Pastor. Really? What part did you like? Uh, they kind of, you know, they don't know, right? They're just saying something that's nice. And hey, bless their hearts. I mean, I want to hear positive things. That's great. But if they're doing it to manipulate you or they're doing it to kind of just win you over, Paul is saying, be careful with that. Promoting your own agenda and your own gain rather than submitting to the will of God is always wrong. It's always wrong especially when you do it with insincerity about the, the remarks about the people that maybe you're ministering with. But also, the inward root is covetousness. Look at what he says at the end. Nor with a pretext for what? For greed. For greed. What that means, the NIV translates it it's this way, a mask to cover up your greediness. You're trying to hide it. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, verse 33, clearly tells us, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel as a representative of Christ. I've, I've never done that. In Isaiah 56, 11, it says, And dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. Then it says this, But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. The Bible does not look favorably upon people who are serving or ministering or in ministry 
just because of greediness. And you see it all over the place. But God does not look favorably on that. So we've seen the proclaiming of God's truth without a heart for God and his glory, pleasing men rather than God, promoting your own agenda rather than submitting to the will of God. And lastly, here's another issue that stands in the way of our motives, is parading your own authority over others rather than being a servant to all. Verse 6, look at what he says. Paul says, nor did we seek glory from people. That's not why Paul went there, whether from you or from others. And then he clarifies it. He says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, he's saying it's not that Paul didn't hold an office of authority. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have demanded certain things, but he never would think of doing that. Why? Because he wasn't parading his authority over others. Rather, he was seeking to serve all, to be a servant of all. I mean, today, throughout all my years in ministry, I've never seen such an abuse of authority like we have today in the local church. Men who think somehow they have their own authority. And they're making demands upon their people. They're weighing their people down with all this stuff. Proverbs 25, 27 says this, It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Or Proverbs 27, 2, we know this one, Let one another, let another one praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Or Galatians 5.26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me, Paul says, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, parading our own authorities over others rather than being a servant of all is always wrong. It's always wrong. Paul said, we didn't do that, even though we could have, because we were apostles, but we didn't do that. That's why Paul continuously, in his letters, when you read his letters, he's continuously saying, Paul, a servant, right, of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus even told us, if you want to be number one, if you want to have some authority, then you know what? Be a slave to all. Serve everybody. That's what Jesus came to do, right? He didn't come to be served, but to what? But to serve. Why are we any different? Uh, Look over at at 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, because this is a great text, and I'm going to read this quickly, so you're going to follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, and the, the apostle Paul was writing, about the abuse of authority. And in verse 1 he says, am I not free? 1 Thessalonians 9, 1. Am I not free? Or 1, 9, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians. <laughs> now I'm all messed up. 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Thank you for that correction. Because I would have kept on going. You would have been thinking, where's he at? 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, Paul says. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. See, they were attacking Paul, saying, hey, he's abusing his authority. Look at what he says in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right, have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? 
For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope, sharing in the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more, he says? Nevertheless, look at this, we have not made use of this right. He says, we have the right to all this, but we haven't made use of it. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not throwing this in your face. Saying, Paul's saying, you know, oh, no, you, should, you should give me some of this stuff because I have a right to it. He's not doing that. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. And then he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That's an incredible passage on the potential abuse of authority. When people parade their authority over others rather than serving them with the agenda of taking things from them. They don't have a heart for God at all because God wants us to be a servant to all. So we've seen the pressures that reveal the right motives, the problems that undermine the right motives. Look at verses 7 to 9 because here we'll quickly go through the priorities that reflect right motives. The priorities that reflect right motives. What are the priorities that reflect right motives? I mean, if you really had a right motive, what would it look like? If your heart is right before God, what are the things that you would really put at the top of your agenda in your life? It's an interesting question. Well, he mentions three of them here. Look at verse 7. First of all, we see care for others. Care for others. If you're the kind of person with right motives, then guess what? You're going to have a care for others. You can spot any day of the week a person with wrong motives. They simply don't care about anybody but themselves. Do you care for others? Do you really care for people? Look at what he says in verse 7. But we were gentle. Gentleness is one of the, the combination of the fruit of the Spirit. Among you, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I mean, look at the picture here, a newborn baby who is breastfeeding on her, her mother's chest. And it's such a gentle picture, the care that that mother has for that young baby. is the same care and concern that we should have for people. We should be concerned. I mean, I got to this part of my study this past week, and I said, okay, Lord, that's enough. <laughs> I don't want any more, <laughs> you know. Uh, because it started to convict me. Do I really care for people? But when you begin to study this more and more, this idea of caring for people, guess what? The conviction got worse. <laughs> then I really wanted to stop. Sometimes we just have to allow the word of God to pierce our hearts, right? 
to do the work that it needs to do, even though it's painful. Even though what we see we may not like. We have to ask, ask that question, do we really care about anybody other than ourselves? See, if you have the right priority, if you have the right motive, what Paul is saying, there's going to be a care, there's going to be a, a real concern for other people. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul writes this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but what? Kind to everyone. He wants us to understand that. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, Everyone should not look out for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. How clear is that? We have to have a care, a concern for others if our motivation is right. Secondly, we have to have a commitment to others. Verse 8, look at what he says in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, he's telling them, we were ready to share with you not only, he says, the gospel of God, but also what? Our own selves. Our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. See, if you care for people, if you love people, then the commitment is just natural. It's going to follow. You're going to be committed to the people that you care for. And that's what he says here. So being affectionately desirous of you, you became very dear to us. In Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, he's telling the people in Philippi. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says in verse 8 of Philippians 1, For God is my witness, listen to these words, how I yearn, I yearn for you with all the, the affection of Christ Jesus. Do we yearn for others? Do we yearn to be in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it kind of like, ah, oh, i got to go, go to church again every week, uh, same old thing. Someone once said, ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for the people. I actually said that one time in a message, and I was very ashamed afterwards, but uh, I kind of said it jokingly. But you know what? There's some people that believe that. There's some people that believe that, hey, it's, you know, their, their, their ministry isn't to minister and care for people, to be committed to the people. That's not it at all. It's just to come and deliver a sermon and, and hightail it out of there. You know, commitment can be seen through sharing time and, and, and sharing lives and being transparent, right? Getting to know each other. All that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as important as yourselves. More important than yourselves. So it's important that we do that. And then the third thing here is not just care for others and commitment to others, but look at what he says in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is... Brings out the contentment before others. Paul was content. See, those with right motives are always people who are content. They're not looking for an angle. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10, he says, in verse 11, basically, Paul, Paul tells us, hey, you, you, know, you brought nothing into this world. You, you can't take anything out for sure. And then in verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. Content. He was content. He was saying, basically, you know what? The Lord will take care of us. Ask yourself, how content are you? How content are you? When we have right motives... The priorities we have in life are always, always centered on others. They're always centered on others. If I asked you what the theme of the book of Philippians was, hopefully some of you would know. It's a three-letter word. Joy, right? Joy. And I remember when I was going to school, 
The professor shared a little acrostic with us, and I've never forgotten this. Joy stands for J, stands for Jesus first. The O stands for others, second. And the Y stands for who? You, last. That's, that's where our hearts should be. First, it's the Lord. Second is others. And then we come last. We don't deserve anything. If we have the right priorities, if we have the right motivations in our own heart, there's a care for people. There's a commitment to them for whatever is necessary. We would impart our own lives to you, he says, You're so dear to us. We would have done anything to help you, no matter what it was, Paul says. There's a contentment. Paul says he'll do all that, and you know what? I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from you. I've always been leery of of preachers and speakers and pastors who, you know, are kind of out there on the, the circuit. And I remember one time we... I invited one. I called one and said, would you be willing to come to our church? Oh, well, sure. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I'll send you an email with all the details. And this individual had a book out that everybody was reading. And I thought, oh, this would be great. You know, it's, it's very new to ministry. It's early years here. Um, and I remember getting this email from this individual and basically have, had a contract in it. I'm like, wow, this is weird. And it had, I think, the minimum of $10,000 payment before they even came. And then, just to let you know, we don't speak to crowds less than 500. And it was ridiculous. And they have to have, you know, sparkling Perrier before in, the, in the green room. I'm like, we don't even have a green room. What's a green room, you know? It was so bizarre. I've always been leery of, of people who think that they're... they're Information is so, so great and so keen that they have to charge for it. Our church is always gracious to guest speakers. We take up a love offering. We pay them a fee because they are taking their time and stuff to be with us, and we want them to come back. But I'll tell you what, I'll never have somebody here who says, oh, by the way, I charge this first. <laughs> nope, sorry, find another church. Um, see, we have to have the attitude, the Lord is going to take care of us. And that purifies us and it cleanses the motives in our own hearts. So we've seen the pressures that reveal the right motives, the problems that undermine the right motives, the priorities that reflect right motives. Let's look at the practices that demonstrate right motives here. Verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you believers, toward you believers. The first thing you see here is a deep respect for the things of God. Notice that word holy in your Bible. Holy. He says that there's witnesses here. That's the Thessalonians. But also God is also a witness. You know, we have to be reminded of that, that God sees everything we do. For a while in the church, there was a big push to have accountability groups and all this stuff. And, and you know, that's that's important part of, of discipleship. But if you think for a second that just because you're in an accountability group that, that you're held accountable, you're believing a lie. Because what are you like when those men aren't around? I mean, a much bigger fear is to realize that God sees you 24-7, 60 seconds out of every minute. 60 minutes out of every hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. God is seeing everything that you think, everything you say, everything you do. He's reading the motives that are in your heart. That's where our true accountability lies. But he says, hey, your witnesses, God's witness, how holy and righteous and blameless. He says, we behaved ourselves among you that believe there in, in Thessalonica. What's interesting is when you look at the the grammar here, those three words, holy, righteousness, or righteous and blameless, those three words are not adjectives, they're adverbs. They're not adjectives, they're adverbs. And if there's adverbs here, the emphasis is not on their character, but it's on their conduct. It's not on their character. He's not saying, oh, Paul, 
and, and Timothy and Silas, you're holy and righteous and blameless. No, he's not saying that. He's saying your, your conduct was such. He's saying that their conduct or their practice, their behavior was characterized by these three things. And when you begin to examine this verse, you realize very quickly, I mean, most of you know in, in the Greek language, the word for holy is hagias. Okay, that's not the word here. In the original language, hagias isn't even here. They translated it holy. So these three things here picture a person with right motives. The word that's used here in this text is hosios. Hosios, not hagias. And what this word means, it's a word that prefers, it, it refers to piety. It refers to a sense of uh, the sacred. Uh, some translations have translated it devoutly. It means to do something in a holy manner. And what he's emphasizing here is how Paul and Silas and Timothy lived before God. They did such in a, in a holy manner. He's saying we're not the kind of people that treat the things of God lightly or with disrespect or joke about them. So we're talking about a person here who has a deep respect for the things of God. He doesn't treat lightly the things of the Lord. I mean, sometimes we tell people, hey, you know, don't take yourself too seriously, but take God seriously, right? Here there's a deep respect for the things of God and the practice that, that demonstrates right motives. Well, secondly, there's also a high regard for what is right. Notice that word righteous. It refers to a high regard for what is right. A person who has a right motive in their heart is looking to do, he wants to do, his desire is always to do what is right. And he's always going to be thinking about it. He's going to be praying about it. He's going to be looking up in Scripture. Is this the right thing to do or not? He's not going to go off half-cocked and just kind of draw his own conclusion. He's saying their conduct and their behavior here, it demonstrated to these new believers in Thessalonica that they were people who were always trying to do the right thing. I mean, look at our society today. I mean, look at the church today in general. I mean, you know as well as I do. There's compromise, compromise, compromise all over the place, including among the culture of Christianity. It's incredible the amount of compromise that's going on. Nobody wants to do what's right. They want to do what they want to do, and then they want somebody to tell them it's okay if they do it. And that's what's happening. See, what is right is determined by God and God alone. Amen? Amen? It's determined by God's word. It's not determined by my opinion or your opinion. So here again, we're trying to purify, we're trying to deal with the motives in our own hearts. This past week, I asked myself, am I like this? Do I have a deep respect for the things of God? Do I have a high regard for what is right? Not from my opinion, not because you tell me it's right, but because God says it's right. I mean, what's going on in our country today is so sad. I mean, I hate to bring up this subject, but I'll ruin your morning. But the truth of the matter is, what's going on in our country today is really a sad commentary on what's happening to all of us in relationship to what is right. Because what is right is no longer right anymore in people's minds. And what used to be wrong is now right. And what is right is now wrong. It's all mixed up. And that's not a, meant to be a political statement because you see it on all sides of the political landscape. It's like they're, they're trying to get away with something. They're trying to water everything down. And when you try to tell them what God says, we don't want to hear what your God has to say. 
We don't want our children to know about the Ten Commandments. We don't want our children to know about prayer. We want them to think that they're mere animals that came out of the swamp. And now, guess what? They're acting like animals, and everybody's going, oh, what's wrong with our youth? Our whole society, including its leaders in high places, are doing whatever they want, beloved. And they're telling us, we don't have any right to tell them what to do. As though somehow what is right is our opinion. It's not our opinion. It doesn't come from us. The issue is, what does God say? And God still says right is right and wrong is wrong. He makes the rules. We don't. We merely abide by them. And because we live in this kind of a culture, sometimes I wonder how even in our own hearts, any of us can have pure motives and right motives before God with all this garbage crashing in around us. It's very difficult. If you have the right kind of conduct in your life, Paul is saying, you want to know what is right from God's point of view, not your point of view, not somebody else's point of view, but from God's point of view. What does God's word say about it? And on another matter, when God is silent on something, maybe we ought to practice a little gentleness and a little silence too, rather than being headstrong and and legalistic about some issues that the Bible doesn't even talk about. See, half the problem is, is nobody is looking to the word of God to see, what does God speak about this? Nobody wants to know what God says anymore. We want to do whatever we want to do. We want, don't want some authority figure, including God, telling us. So you see here a deep respect for the things of God, a, holy, a high regard for what is right, righteous. And then thirdly here, a clear reputation for never using people to achieve your goals. Look at that word, blameless. The third word here is blameless. Amemptas. It's a difficult word, but Paul is talking here about Paul and Timothy and Silas. He's saying there's a clear reputation for never using people to achieve their goals. Never using people to achieve their goals. Paul's saying no one could charge us of using people to achieve some project or, or some goal, whatever we wanted to do. He says, we were blameless. We were unblameable in that regard. And both you and I often know people who manipulate people. They manipulate people. They set them up to do something for their their ministry or their work with their name all over it. It's all about their agenda. I remember a little practice plaque I I used to have in my dorm room and it wasn't even a plaque it was just a piece of paper somebody I cut it out of a magazine or something but it said this it says don't use people to build your work but use your work to build people don't use people to build your work but to use your work to build people there's a whole lot of truth in that statement and it's biblical Philippians 2.15, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, Paul says. And innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, we're called to be different. We're called to be blameless in this area. These three things, righteousness, holiness, righteousness, blameless, they're all adverbs. They're all dealing with our conduct. How do you, how do you, you know, apply this to, to our, own, our own lives? We use everything that we have. We use all the skills that we have. We use all the abilities. We use all the gifts that God has given to us to what? To build people up, to bring the truth of God to bear upon their hearts. That's what we're called to do.
Well, the fifth thing here, and we'll close with this, the purpose that controls right motives. The purpose that controls right motives, verses 11 and 12. How do I know whether my heart is truly right in this? Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, well, what are you trying to achieve? What's the purpose behind what you're doing? What's your purpose? Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, for you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Is that your purpose? Could you say that with Paul? In verse 11, I notice that it's connected to a father's heart. He says, for you know how like a father with his children. Ask yourself, do we have a father's heart? Is that what drives our motives? Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But right here in verse 11, we have three participles in Greek. And they reveal the nature of ministry toward people. And the first one here in verse 12, he says, We exhorted each of you, parakaleo, and it, it, it means to exhort. We exhorted each of you. The word means to call alongside, to help someone take another step. The exhortation here is challenging people to see what God can do in their lives. That's what we're all called to do. See, if you have the right purpose, if you have the right motivation, you'll see that it's connected very clearly to a father's heart. A father has concern for his children. It's not, he's not just concerned about himself all the time. And the father that exhorts, it challenges the child to, do what, to see what God can do in their lives. That's what we're called to do. That's the kind of fathers we need today. The second thing here is encouragement. He says, not only did we exhort you, but we encouraged you. Parametheomai. It's an interesting word because it's, it's in the original language it's primarily used to deal with someone who's dealing with a funeral service. Comfort. When someone has died and they needed comfort, this is the word that they would use. And, you know, you, you can't fake it at that point, right? You, you have to provide real comfort, real encouragement. You have to understand that how to comfort people when things are difficult. What is our motive? Well, the purpose of God wants us to have towards people will control our motives because it's connected to a father's heart who will exhort and who will encourage when people are going through tough times. That speaks of someone's motives. Thirdly, You see there, he says, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Establishment is the word I chose. Establishment, exhortation, encouragement, establishment. The first one, exhortation, challenges people to do what God can do through their lives, through exhortation. The second comforts people when things are different when they're difficult through encouragement the third convinces people the goal is to convince people of god's truth by establishing them in the word it's translated charged every one of you there marteromai in the original language it means to give a witness and because of the witness you convince people in other words a part of what real ministry is, is to help people get established in the word of God. It's not just to stroke their ego or to make them feel good. It's to convince them that there's truth in this book. There's truth to the word of God. That is the right motive. That is the the purpose that's connected to a father's heart. But also it's concerned 
about how a person lives before God. Look at verse 12. Walk in a manner worthy of God. It's concerned about how a person lives before God. I mean, what is your purpose toward people? Just to yup it up and have a good time and talk about sports and, you know, get along with them and maybe, if you can, help them to be successful, help them to get a job. What's the purpose? Well, the purpose for a believer is so much more than that. The purpose is that they would walk in a, in a manner that's worthy of God. Do you have a deep concern about how people live before God? Or are you just ignoring it? Or are you just trying to get what you can out of the friendship and move on? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul wanted them to understand that this is very important. Make sure that our life is in balance, that we're hopefully practicing what we're preaching. We don't do it perfectly. None of us do. But our desire is to do so. And our purpose toward, towards other people, towards other believers, is to get them to walk with the Lord, not to constantly tear them down or neg- neglect them or ignore them, but to get them to live for the Lord and to, to, to learn to walk with them. And finally, it's not just connected to a father's heart concerned about a person, how he lives before the Lord, but thirdly, it's centered in our personal relationship to the Lord. It says, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I love that. May God help us never to forget where we are headed. Amen? I mean, we are called into his kingdom and his glory. When Christ shall appear, the Bible says, we shall appear with him in glory. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But the purpose that will control my motives is I wanted to walk worthy of God, to really live for the Lord. Why is that? Why is that an important point? Because that's where we're going. That's where we're going to spend all of eternity. We're headed for heaven. What, what happens down here doesn't really matter. Jesus said a man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. And unfortunately, where we get our motivations and our motives all messed up, is that we begin to believe that we live in a world of of things. We live in a world of possessions and events and circumstances that all happen down here. And we forget what's the most important thing, is that we learn to walk daily with God. Because we're going to be walking with him forever, for all eternity. This is not our home. We're just passing through, as the song says. May God help us to understand that, that we need right motives in our hearts while we're down here striving to do the Lord's work. One thing I figured out this past week is I know I need right motives. I want right motives. But I also found out that the ability to carry this out, it's not in me. (laughs) You're right. I mean, I really want to have the right motives. And I know you do too. Everybody does. But the ability to know that and understand what that is, is not, I can't figure that out on my own. That's why we have to come to this book, the Bible. That's why we have to apply principles that are scriptural principles to our lives. Let God tell us what is right and wrong. We have to come under the searchlight of God's word. We all do. It's the word of God that tells me that I need to focus on is getting people to walk with the Lord. 
So we've seen the pressures that reveal the right motives, the problems that undermine, the priorities that reflect, the practices that demonstrate, and the purpose that controls right motives. I know it's a lot, but it's so important that we apply these to our own lives. Because one day we're going to be going and being with him for all eternity. And we long for that day. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for that day when we will see Jesus face to face. And Father, we know down here on this earth we all struggle. We struggle with having the proper motivations for what we do. Sometimes we think we've done something and we can't even conclude whether it was right or wrong. (laughs) Sometimes we get all mixed up in our our motives. And we constantly need to be purified. We need to be cleansed of all that's wrong so that we could have the right motivation. So that we might have a heart for God and a heart for God's people. Because we know that we can become so self-centered, so wrapped up in what we're doing. We don't see even anybody around us. I pray, Lord, that we would make a change in that area, that you would help us in a special way, you who are the God of all comfort and strength, the Lord for all those believers. Lord, we struggle with it all the time in our ministry for you. God, help us to find that time with you alone, that we can open up our hearts, unveil our hearts to the searchlight of God's word that you would reveal to us the proper motives, the right motives, so that we can do all for the honor of your name. We thank you in the wonderful name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.